Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Top Producer Podcast. I'm Nick Eink, a Top Producer Account Manager working with customers from the great state of Minnesota. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. Our podcast aims to bring you insights and value for top producers across our egg industry. And we have an incredible guest with us today, Luke Tominelli. Luke is the head of North America Policy and Advocacy with our esteemed government affairs team based right in the heart of Washington, D.C. Today, he will be sharing his expertise on a post-election update, along with shedding light on important and current policy events. Without further ado, we'll turn it over to Luke. You know, this is what we call an off year, where not every state, it's not an even year, it's an odd year, so not every state has elections. Congress doesn't have elections. Um, some states, some legislatures, some governors, some attorneys general, and I don't remember the the total number, but it was a handful of states that had elections last week. And people were watching to try and identify trends that they could use to predict what might happen a year from now. And one of the things they say in off-year elections is that the party that does well um, in the off-year election, the parties that do best in those contests are a predictor of their party doing well the following year. And so the inverse, if a party does poorly, they think that bodes poorly for the presidential nominee. This is kind of conventional campaign kind of thinking. Um, and so, and so in the States, I'm trying to think of, you know, more than just Virginia, Virginia, we had a state for the state house, a race for the state house and the state Senate. Kentucky had a governor's race. Mississippi had a governor's race. Their legislatures were up. Pennsylvania had a legislative race for their, for control of their state house. And basically, I don't know if running the map is the fair term to describe how Democrats did, but they did pretty well. They did pretty well. In Virginia, Governor Glenn Youngkin was trying to use the occasion to gain control of the state Senate. He had control of the state house by like one or two votes. He was trying to gain control of the state Senate so he could have the trifecta of state government. Uh, Not only did he not win the Senate, but he lost the house. And so now he's going into his final two years with no I don't want to say no legislative backing, but he doesn't have either chamber. So that's one example um, that bodes well for Democrats. Democrats in Virginia really turned out. Um, and these off-year elections, you know, turn out, turnout's generally pretty poor. Um, so in Virginia, that ran against the grain. That ran contrary to what people were expecting. In Kentucky, a Democratic governor running for re-election against a candidate who was fairly popular, who was endorsed by Trump in a state that Trump wins by, I think, 20 points every time he's on the ballot, 20, 25 points. Um, the Democrat won re-election. He ran re-election, but he won re-election by running as a moderate. Um, in terms of his his governance, he is fairly moderate, but he's more moderate in terms of his demeanor. And so he was able to say, you know, I'm not one of these left-wing guys from wherever, you know, the left coast or, you know, the east coast or wherever. I'm a I'm a I'm a moderate, you know, I'm a moderate Democrat. Um, One of the issues that he used 
to draw a distinction between him and his candidate was abortion. Expect abortion to be a big issue going into next year, especially post Roe v. Wade. Um, and I think this year was kind of a trial run to see how that worked in the states. It worked in Virginia. It worked in Kentucky. You know, for example, um, in a state that Trump had, you know, still won. Another example, look at Ohio. Trump wins Ohio by generally five to eight points in the last few elections, the last couple times he's run. And Republicans do well in Ohio, but when abortion was on the ballot, and I can't remember this specific provision, I think it was, I, I don't know if it was a ban or, you know, mostly a ban. Um, that that petition lost by, I think it was eight points. I think, I'm not positive, but so so Democrats in terms of their issues and their candidates did fairly well. Pennsylvania, I think the House of Representatives flipped um, the Democrats, once again, they go back and forth. And so all in all, Democrats feel pretty strong. Contrast this, they feel pretty strong about the turnout. They feel pretty strong about the results. Contrast this to how Biden's doing in the polls. What his people are starting to say is people may have concerns about his age. People may have concerns about um, how capable he is about doing the job, but they like his agenda. Look at how we did on election day in all of these states, look at the support for his individual proposals for the things he's done. And so his agenda may be, he may be unpopular, but his agenda's not. And by election day, we think voters will come around to it and, you know, Biden will, Biden will win. So that's the message that his people are pushing um, to try and ramp up optimism. But, you know, let's be clear. A couple months out of 2020, Biden was ahead in the polls, five to 10 points nationally and three to five points in the key states. Now he's roughly tied in the polls. And, and let's keep in mind, he won the national vote by two percentage points. He won in the states by like one to two points. OK, so the polling greatly outpaced the results. Fast forward to today, he's tied in the national polls. And in the swing states, we just saw a cluster of polls from last week that had him down in five of six swing states by three to five points. So that tells me if, if all things are the same and if you compare the polls now versus where the polls were not this time four years ago, but closer to the election four years ago, that tells me that Biden could lose. You know, that tells me that Trump is in a really strong position. Let's wait to see where he is three months, five months, seven months, nine months. And then obviously, and then obviously, you know, six to eight weeks out before the election, that'll give us a better indicator. But for now, Biden's got the race of his life um, is what is what I would say. And Trump's support remains, um, you know, some people have said that it's grown. I've seen things saying that he's doing better amongst younger voters. Um, I've seen indicators that. Biden's support among African-Americans has slipped a little bit, not too much, but just slightly. Um, and those things can make a difference when these races are really decided by 100,000 votes in six states, right? 150,000 votes in, in five or six states. And so um, this is going to be a barn burner election. I had predicted that Biden was going to drop out. At this point, that's not possible. He could be replaced at the convention, but... You know, that's unlikely. We haven't had a spirited convention since, I think, 1976 in terms of 
you know, there being potential for the candidate to switch, um, there being potential for the candidate to be someone other than who was going into the convention with the delegate lead. And so uh, unlikely, but possible, possible. So that's what I would say. Um, I'm going to stop on the politics for a minute, see if there's any questions, and then I'm going to jump to kind of the more the Speaker of the House and stuff like that. So any questions so far? And Luke, I don't see anything in the chat as well, uh, but just a reminder for those that have joined us, if you want to type in a question, um, you're welcome to do that as well. Hey, thank you. Okay, so in Washington, we basically got a circus that we're dealing with right now. We've got a new Speaker of the House who's been in office for, I think, two weeks. Uh, he came from the number seven leadership position in the House. He'd been in the House for seven years. Um, very little experience compared to previous speakers and minority leaders and majority leaders. So far, he's trying to negotiate to keep the government open. We're coming up on the next funding deadline for the government to run out of funding. We've got about a week, I think. He's produced a proposal to keep the government running. Um, it's called a continuing resolution. I read just this morning that the Freedom Caucus, which is influential within the Republican conference, came out and said, no, we're not going to support this. And so that gives him one problem. The other problem is while Schumer in the Senate has said we're open to what he's going to send us, most of the people in the Senate are saying that the House proposal is dead on arrival. And so what's going to happen? Are they going to decide that they can't get an agreement for even an extension of current funding levels? And then they're going to have to go to a two-week extension, a four-week extension, a six-week extension, who knows? But the longer time goes on without a resolution to this short-term funding issue, the, the, the worse it's going to get. And if we have a government shutdown, um, I think both parties are trying really hard because they don't want to take blame. But I suspect that Republicans in the House would probably take more blame because they have the House. They have, can, they have nominal control of the House but they do, they do have the majority. And so, and so I think they'd probably take more flack for it, but both parties will blame each other. And so, you know, in a 50, 50 country, half the country will believe their party's responsible for the shutdown and the other half won't. Um, so that's, that's my prediction for, for the funding fight. You also have more kind of um, housekeeping items going on where this new speaker needs to get staffed up. The speaker has a large staff. You know, I think they have 30 staff in the speaker's office. I saw someone yesterday who I know who just got hired on. They're slowly pulling people in. But the problem the speaker has, which is kind of interesting, is that when you get to that level in Washington, you usually have decades worth of staff and staff alumni, lobbyists, and other relationships around the city that can help guide you through the position and can help guide you in doing the job. Mike Johnson doesn't have any of that. He has maybe a dozen people who've worked for him who are downtown now who are lobbyists or do other things. I think it's actually less than that. Um, his network of lobbyists is very small. And so the people who can advise him, it's a pretty thin bench. And it's funny, I was talking to someone the other day and I mentioned that 
yeah, you know, years ago when I was on Capitol Hill, I knew, you know, I worked with a guy who ended up becoming Johnson's chief of staff. And now he's over in the Capitol with Johnson. And they said to me, look at that. You have a relationship with the chief of staff. You're going to be golden. And I thought, well, how ridiculous is that? I mean, everybody in this town is trying to figure out a way to claim some type of connection to Louisiana or some type of connection to Mike Johnson so they can get their foot in the door. Number one, I don't think that really works. Number two, I don't think it really matters because when it comes to having relationships with these very high ranking members of Congress, it's not like you're going to get time with them individually. It's not like you're going to be able to influence them directly. It's really just kind of a measurement of popularity and influence and influence in the Washington kind of game. That's all it really is. Um, so, you know, if you grew up with the Speaker of the House and you're best friends with them, will that help you? Sure. W why wouldn't it? But for the most part, all these people need to be running around like chickens with no heads trying to claim that they know the speaker and they have relationships with the speaker and they're from Louisiana, so they should get in with the speaker. I think a lot of that's silly. I don't think a lot of that makes a difference. Um, so maybe that's just me having been around for 20 years and being kind of um, being kind of grumpy about how the town how the town really works. So bottom line, they have to get a funding agreement. I Johnson is very intelligent. There's no question about that. The question is, tactically and strategically, can he go up against the Biden White House and Chuck Schumer um, in terms of being able to narrow out an agreement that he can get through his Freedom Caucus and through the rest of his conference that Democrats will also agree to? I don't know. Like I said, he doesn't have a lot of support. He's really a man on his own. Um, and so, you know, time will tell if he's able to cut a deal or if he's able to get something. I know one thing for certain, which is that his honeymoon period with his own party is going to be short. And, you know, so I was reading in the news this morning that um, it's possible that Democrats could give him the votes for a continuing resolution. If that happens, don't expect him to get removed from leadership immediately. That would be ridiculous. But I think... That would be a tough foot to get started on in terms of his own party. That was the reason, that was a stated reason, I'm not sure it was the only reason, that the band of rebels in the House, as they're known, um, removed Kevin McCarthy was because they didn't like that he cut a deal with Democratic support and without you know, sufficient Republican support. So you know, it's going to be hard for Johnson to string the needle and to do what needs to be done as is required by the position. It's 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 not a task I'd want to have. So that's where I would stop on funding the government and the speaker's new tasks. My plan now is to shift to policy, but any questions before we do that? Okay. Um so every office in D.C., every company, every organization has their own list of items that they're trying to advance through Congress, advance through the administration, advance with their allies. We're no different. We have dozens of issues that we work on day in and day out. Um, we have people who focus on international trade. We have people who focus on sustainability. We have people who focus on seeds and traits. We have people who focus on chemistry, uh, which is what I do. And 
I've kind of highlighted just a few issues that we're focused on to give you an idea of what, you know, what a typical day, what a typical day looks like. Um, I've tried to keep this stuff high level because it can be pretty thick and I don't want to bore people, but I'll start with endangered species. The Endangered Species Act says that whenever the government takes an action that can threaten or harm endangered species, you have to do an assessment and find a way to minimize harm to those species. The way this applies with pesticide registrations is that before you get the label for the pesticide, you have to be able to ensure that you're not going to do irreparable harm to those species and the environment. The problem has been for the last 40 years, the EPA, which is in charge of that process, has not done that. They simply have not done the work. They have not been able to certify when they give a registration that this isn't going to have a negative effect for threatened and endangered species. They've just never done it, frankly, because it's too hard to do. Um, and about 20 years ago, environmental groups started to sue. What's happened, fast forward 20 years later, is that the courts have become fed up with EPA because time and time and time again, they've given EPA deadlines for being able to do their Endangered Species Act work. These are called consultations um, to be able to do their work. And EPA, time and time again, has said, we just haven't been able to do it. We don't have the resources. Congress has to give us more money. And so, this administration decided about two years ago that they were going to, as much as they could, fix this Endangered Species Act issue. The problem is that EPA is now on the hook with dozens of, for dozens of lawsuits that they've been found guilty of violating the Endangered Species Act. And there's really no debate here. The question is, did EPA do the work or did they not? And the answer almost every time is no, they didn't do it. So they're found in violation of the act. Why does this matter? If one day a judge wakes up and says, you know what, EPA, you haven't done this work for 200 different registrations. We're going to take them all off the market. It's called vacature. Well, that's a that's a bad day for farmers, right? That's That's not something anyone wants to see except maybe some of the opponents of pesticide use. And so EPA set out to find a way where they could comply with the Endangered Species Act, hopefully without putting farmers out of business. That was their stated in, that was their stated intent. What we've seen over the last several months is that they're putting out plan after plan after plan for complying with this mandate, which really appears to leave farmers in the lurch. Um, I'll give you an example, something called the Vulnerable Species Pilot Project, where they identify 27 vulnerable or endangered species and tell you how they're going to manage for those species so as not to do harm to them in pesticide applications. There's these things in there called PULAs, pesticide use limitation areas, which means you, have to, you either have to spray less or can't spray at all. And so the growers, several of the grower groups have been very displeased, very upset about what they think this proposal means. There's another proposal called the herbicide strategy, which basically says for you to spray pesticides in some of these areas, 
you have to utilize a point system. And unless you come up with a sufficient number of points by using mitigations, what we call mitigations, you're not going to be able to spray either. And so doing a mitigation, doing one mitigation in particular will get you two points. Doing another one will get you three points. If you can get to nine points or 12 points or 15 points or whatever the minimum is in those circumstances, you can go ahead and spray. The problem is that there's no financial benefit. There's no financial incentive. A farmer simply being told you must do these things. Right. And if you don't do them, the heavy hand of government is going to come down and, you know, enforcement people are going to come out to your farm and all this kind of stuff. And so the growers have reacted, um, I would say, with 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 great energy um, to what EPA is doing. There's a lot of concerns about who EPA spoke to when they were coming up with these proposals. How much do they actually know about farming? Keep in mind that EPA does the registration, but EPA does the registrations for pesticides, but when we're talking culturally, the agency that really knows the most about farming in the U.S. government is the Department of Agriculture. And so this pesticide regulation at EPA, culturally, you know, the people at EPA tend to be more um, environmental scientists, tend to be more um, PhD scientists um, with backgrounds in toxicology and stuff like that. They don't tend to be people who've come off of the farm um, who know farming, who've been around pesticides their whole life. That's usually not what you get at EPA. Whereas at USDA, you tend to get people who have more of a background in agriculture. And so there's been substantial pushback on these plans. Uh, one thing that's been brought up is, would a farmer or farmers sue to get these plans knocked out? And would that actually be successful? Um, there's an argument to be made that from the moment that a farmer is told they can't spray on their land, that they could make a case that the government is taking their land, taking the value of their land and leaving them with nothing. I've heard lawyers talk about that opportunity. Could a, could a lawsuit based on takings, a government takings be filed? Too early to know, too early to say. Um, but certainly the growers are talking about it. The Soybean Association has active, been active in this. The Cotton Council has been active in this. Um, the corn growers have been active in this issue. And so stay tuned. But what people really need to be prepared for is a fundamental shift in how pesticides are regulated in the United States. We've been talking about ESA for decades. EPA hasn't taken action. They're taking it now and it's going to have an impact. And so this is something that people need to be aware of and kind of see what's coming. And if you ever have questions about it or any of the topics I'm discussing, you can just call me. Um, so that's ESA. Um, I had a couple other things. I think we're okay for time. Kirby, is that is that right? Just a few more items? Yes. Yep. You're good okay. on time. Okay. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to pick the issues I want to talk about because I have three and I know I'm not going to have time for them. So treated seeds. Um, several years ago, an environmental group sued the EPA arguing that something called the treated article exemption should be rescinded. So what does that mean? The treated article exemption is a regulation at EPA which says if you are registered, well, treated seeds under the treated article exemption, 
means if you are registered, the pesticide is registered with the government. You don't have to double register. You don't have to register the seed. So once the seed is treated, the only thing that's being regulated by EPA is the pesticide that's on it. But what some environmental groups and others have said is that, no, you should regulate the individual seed in addition to the pesticide so that every time um, a certain type of seed goes through registration or every time a certain type of seed goes on the market, <clears throat> it has to go through a separate registration process, which could be litigated and so forth. And I think people understand kind of the roadblocks that could occur if you have a process like that. The environmental groups sued the EPA six years ago in order to get this so-called treated article exemption removed from treated seeds so that you would have to register these treated seeds. <clears throat> EPA took five years to act on it. Uh, they had to be sued again uh, to respond to it. They finally responded to it and said, you know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to require you to register seed with the EPA. We are going to put out um, what's called a notice of proposed rulemaking to get feedback from states, regulators, dealers, retailers, pick your group, um, to see if there are gaps in the regulation of treated seed. And so they recently did that. They put something called an ANPR out, Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. And they're taking public comment into, I think, February. It was originally going to be until December, but they delayed the comment period by 60 days. Which, at the end of the day, won't make a huge difference, by the way, because you have the holidays, and so people's time is already going to be focused on other things. But um, they provided a little more time for industry and people to come in. <clears throat> Here's why we're looking at this. <clears throat> you have retailers, obviously, who do some of the seed treatment, depending on the crop. So my understanding is that, <clears throat> excuse me. My understanding is that 95% of soybeans, maybe more, are treated downstream at one of the sites, treated downstream either at a retailer, an independent dealer, et cetera. Um, cotton, I can't remember the percentage. I think it's around half is done in the same way. Corn, less so. Vegetables are done upstream in terms of seed treatment, vegetable seeds. So here's why we're looking at this. If a retailer or an independent dealer is told, you have to pick your regulation, pick your regulatory action. You have to be responsible for more regulatory work, for more regulatory compliance when a, treat, when a seed is being treated. They're obviously going to incur costs. And so one of the things we're doing is talking to retailers and talking to independent dealers to see one, if they can respond to this public comment period and actually get on the record and describe their practices and say, you know, I mean, if they think there needs to be more regulation, they should say it. But if they don't, they should say that, too. And so we're trying to get them on the record, but we're also trying to get EPA to understand that there are costs here for farmers. If you're a retailer, you may be able to absorb some of those costs from added regulation. But if you're an independent dealer, a one man or one woman show, it seems unlikely that you're going to have any way to save that revenue stream and that you're gonna be able to offset it. You know, so we're talking about a, value, a valuable revenue stream that could be completely eliminated depending upon what EPA chooses to do. And so that's what's going on with treated seed. 
Uh, if people want to know more, again, get in touch with me. I have all the information I can share with you. Um, <clears throat> two more things I would mention. The first is funding for EPA. You know, historically, EPA, they get a pot of money, let's call it, one big pot of money. It's really two pots, but let's call it one big pot of money for registering pesticides. In recent years, grower groups have increasingly said, as well as members of Congress, have increasingly said, we don't like what EPA is doing, so we're not going to give them more money to do it. Our response has been the only way to get products out into the market is to ensure that they do have funding so they can hire people with the necessary degrees and background and experience to be able to actually get these products on the market. A non-functioning OPP, Office of Pesticide Programs, a non-functioning OPP is good for nobody in our line of work. As long as that, and if the government shuts down, OPP shuts down. This year, House Republicans proposed, I think, a 40% budget cut to EPA. Fortunately, they proposed to keep funding for pesticide programs level. And so one of the struggles we had over the last several years is getting uh, Congress in particular and some grower groups to understand if you eliminate funding, they're only going to get worse. The way you keep them funded and get them to behave is by doing congressional oversight and ensuring that they're not going off the rails with their funding and they're not doing things with their funding that are contrary to what Congress and grower groups and industry intended for them to do. Um, one of the pieces of funding EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs is a little office buried within OPP called BPPD. I don't even remember what it stands for. Uh, biopesticides and something else division. Why they're important is because they register <clears throat> tips or traits. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just getting over COVID. I'm, I'm clear. I tested negative this morning, but still dealing with a little, a little, a little symptom symptomology. Um, one of the things that's very important to industry our company in particular, is that EPA have the necessary resources for getting <clears throat> traits registered. Because if you think about it from a revenue perspective, chemistry, pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, rodenticides, are probably 90% of the regulatory burden facing our industry. You know, seeds are regulated differently. They're regulated by USDA. A little bit of the seed the seed package is regulated by EPA. But most of the work that we do to comply with government regulation is on chemistry. Most of the money that is made in this industry um, when it comes to chemistry versus seed is in the seed. When you have a genetically designed seed, you know, the R&D that goes into that over the years is tremendous, and the return on that investment is also substantial. So one of the things we're trying to do, given that we have um, a heavy pipeline in the biotech space in the next several years, is to get more funding for this little office called BPPD so that they can have the necessary people in place um, to do the work and to get these traits and these PIPs, as we call them, approved and out into the market. 
Um, we are running into some of the same pushback that I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that um, this community tends to be, I would say, weary of EPA. And so, and this is just kind of throughout agriculture, right? EPA is not the most trusted agency in the US government. And so the idea of giving more money to the government regulator is something that some people will come back to us and say, well, are you sure you wanna do that? Don't you wanna give them less money to make sure they're not able to do the things we don't want them to do? In my view, if we give them less money, they're just gonna get worse. They're gonna get less reliable, less dependable, um, and more problems for us getting our products out the door. And so that's one of the things we're focused on is getting more funding for these PIPs, uh, as they're called, in order to get these products out into the market. So that's what's going on with our efforts to fund the agency. And the last thing I wanna mention is something called PFAS. I think people generally know um, what PFAS are. They're a class of chemicals, thousands of chemicals, they're usually referred to in the context of industrial chemicals like firefighting foam, Teflon, um, Scotchgard, uh, you name it. Uh, materials that, that when they get wet, the water doesn't absorb, they deflect water, for example. Um, these chemicals have been around for a long time and they've been in the news, there have been movies made about them. But an issue that's grown in recent years, the last couple of years, is this issue of pesticides contaminated with PFAS. And so a couple of years ago, EPA concluded that one company in particular, you're aware, you know, our chemistries, our chemicals are housed in plastic jugs. Those jugs, sometimes, not all the time, are coated with something called fluorination. Fluorination is meant to keep the plastic intact on the inside of the bottle. What they were finding was that the pesticides were eating the fluorination. The fluorination was getting into the pesticide, converting into PFAS. And then when you test the pesticide, you would find PFAS in it. And so suddenly people were saying, oh, this is a you know five-story fire alarm. We got to do something about this. This stuff is on people's food. Pest uh, PFAS is bad for your health, so on and so forth. Um, that issue has ebbed and flowed over the last few years. But just this week, we found we got a report from the Pesticide Action Network over in Europe. So it's focused in Europe right now, but it's not it's it's not here yet, but it will be. Uh, claiming that five bare pesticides, <clears throat> five bare uh, active ingredients, are what they call PFAS pesticides, which means, as they would as they would say it, um, anytime you spray these pesticides, you are in fact spraying PFAS. Uh, into the environment. Not only do they say that, they say that it's intentional and that industry has used PFAS because it prolongs the effect of pesticides in the environment. I've never heard that. Um, it, it's, it's something that's foreign to me, but this is their claim. And this brings the possibility of new pressure on industry, new questions about public health, um, new questions about industry best practices and that type of thing. And so we're watching this pretty closely because it's five of our molecules. So far, the EPA has said, we're not gonna regulate these, we're not gonna regulate pesticides any differently. They already go through a pretty serious uh, regulatory screening process, public health process. Um, 
but there are people who want to dramatically increase the regulation of pesticides in order to further regulate PFAS. And um, that's something that should Biden win a second term. You probably see some movement there. You could see some movement there. Uh, it's going to move in Europe before it does here. But uh, it's something that we're watching, we're concerned about, and um, and we're going to keep focused on. So um, hopefully I haven't used too much time, so I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Top Producer Podcast. We hope you found Luke's insights on the Pulse election update and current policy events enlightening. As a top producer, it's crucial to stay informed on an ever-changing landscape of our industry. If you have any questions or comments on today's episode, please reach out. On that note, if you have any topics you would like us to focus on in the future, please bring those ideas to your local top producer account manager. Success comes to those who are constantly learning and have a growth mindset. Thank you for listening, and more importantly, thank you for all you do. It's a privilege and a pleasure my colleagues and I get to do what we do every day with each and every one of you and your organizations. We look forward to connecting with you soon. 